the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good morning, Central Arkansas. This is Ryan Norris sitting in for the incomparable Dave Ellswick, who is on vacation today, a well-deserved vacation. Dave is an institution in our in our society here in Arkansas. He's been a longtime friend of Americans for Prosperity, uh, which I am the state director of, and he's just been a great voice for liberty-minded individuals here in the state. He has impacted legislation. He has gotten the word out about things that uh, these, the public needs to know about what their government is doing. He has the greatest interviews with some of the best minds in our nation. And uh, I'm really honored to be able to sit in this chair today uh, and that Dave had the courage to turn it over to me. Uh, but Dave, hope that you're having a great Great time on vacation. It is well-deserved. So today the uh, Facebook is down. Luckily, I have a Face 4 radio, so luckily you don't have to put up with me even on Facebook today. But you can go to 1011FMTheAnswer.com to follow the podcast uh, later on. So that's 1011FMTheAnswer.com for the podcast. Uh, today is... Um, is going to be kind of interesting. We're going to have a guest, some guests in uh, at six thirty. Kevin Hunt will be joining us. Kevin works with Lessons Learned here in Little Rock. Works in our schools with at-risk youth. The goal of which is to keep them from being justice involved and to uh, lower youth uh, crime rates. Kevin will have a lot to talk about. He is a frontline worker uh, in that area and has a lot of great things to to talk about. Also, at 7 o'clock, we're going to have Israel Ortega. Israel is with the Libre Initiative, a nationwide organization that works in the Hispanic Latino communities uh, and proliferates the principles of human progress, of liberty, of free markets, and they're seeing some amazing uh, successes uh, in more and more of the Latino Hispanic communities that are opening up their minds to free markets and to what makes America great and that want to achieve the American dream. And so we'll talk to uh, Israel Ortega. And then at 9 o'clock today, Paul Chapman, who's executive director for Restore Hope, an initiative and uh, initially started by Governor Hutchinson that focuses in on foster care and reentry and how they are working to help home more kids, put families back together, and keep people who are coming from uh, from the reentry space, coming from incarceration, getting them on a path to success for the rest of their life. So lots of lots of fun that will uh, times and talks 
but uh, a lot to learn today. But what I wanted to start off with is something that uh, is on the minds of all of us that will be going to the gas pumps, uh, the strategic oil reserve release that President Biden is talking about. Now, this is, I think it's been over 100 million plus barrels that he's already released from the strategic oil reserve, the reserve that is supposed to be there in case of emergency, an emergency on the scale of uh, American being attacked, our military needing it, um, keeping critical uh, infrastructure and transportation going during a time like that, during a time of national security. Uh, OPEC is cutting back on production. And in light of the midterms, the president is deciding that he is going to release another 10 million barrels from the strategic oil reserves, which are already at a 40-year low. 40-year low and another 10 million barrels out. This shouldn't happen. You shouldn't be politicizing the strategic oil reserve just to buy votes. That is not in the interest of this country. And an administration that would do that is highly in, highly skeptical whether that they have the best interest of this country in mind at all. And voters need to take that into consideration, that considering the national security issues of Russia getting desperate because of losses in Ukraine, of the North Koreans launching more missiles uh, into the ocean, you know, again, just trying to steer up and rattle rattle the sabers a bit on the the Korean peninsula there. Now is not the time to decrease the strategic oil reserve by another 10 million barrels just so you you can maybe mitigate the losses that you're anticipating in the midterm elections. So top-tier issue, look more into that, um, hear more about that. That's just something that we need to be talking about to our friends and our neighbors, that any administration that put the entire country at risk, that's highly skeptical whether they should be in the leadership. Uh, Americans for Prosperity has been working on this issue of, of energy. And we have just concluded a summer of what we call the True Cost of Washington Tour. So the True Cost of Washington Tour was this idea that we would go to gas stations around the United States. We went to over 200 of them, Uh, did some here in Arkansas. And we lowered the price of gasoline from whatever the price was that day to $2.38. Lots of folks lined up to pay $2.38. AFP would make up the difference to the gas station owner for whatever the the daily rate was. But the idea was is to connect people to the policies because $2.38 represented the average national cost of gasoline per gallon in January of 2021. And you could start seeing the light bulbs go off in people's minds as they said, hey, wow, in that period of time, changes in administration and changes in policy have resulted in that much of an increase in gas prices. Just listening to Hugh Hewitt this morning, he had someone on from Marino who now is paying $7 a gallon uh, for gasoline. That is crazy. And so it connected people to the policies that, yes, what, what you do with your vote does matter. It does make it easier or harder on your families. And what we were able to talk to them about in the True Cost of Washington tour is that 62% of families 
believe their income is is shrinking. It's falling behind inflation. That real wages are actually down by about 3% compared to what you're able to buy with your dollar. And then it's costing the average family about $5,500 more per per year because of inflation. So again, policies that sometimes we just our neighbors think when we vote it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't really matter. It's just choosing, you know, one side over another, A or B, blue or red. But no, it really does have an impact because there are real people hurting out there. We heard stories at these pumps from retirees on fixed incomes who were not able to fill up their vehicle, and this was the first time all summer they were able to do that. That's not right. Any administration that would have policies in place that would intentionally harm our seniors and those in the low and middle income that are struggling, that's not right. Your idealism is not working. We need energy abundance, and that's what we were, we were asking about, is energy abundance, that we need an all-of-the-above approach. We need solar. We need wind. We need more nu- nuclear. We need more of the fossil fuels that exist here in our country. So it's not just in, uh, independence, you know, or dependence on, on our oil, but we need an all-of-the-above ap- approach. Because we also heard from individuals who said, hey, you know, Ryan, I can't afford an $80,000 electric vehicle, and I'm just trying to keep my vehicle going. And so I can't believe the president is saying or his administration is telling me that this is where I need to be because I just can't afford that. It's totally unrealistic. So we're seeing this across the the nation to where individuals are getting fed up over the the policies that are definitely meaning that it is a lesser quality of life for our families. And um, and these, so it was really, really fascinating to, to hear Arkansans, fellow Arkansans, uh, talk about this. One lady had a van that she was filling up. And we asked, you know, hey, what's this about? It was a nice van. She said, Ryan, this van we haven't been able to fill up. It is for transporting my nephew who has cancer from Fort Smith to Arkansas Children's Hospital for treatments. And he, because of his cancer, he needs to lay flat. Well, we haven't been able to fill this up and take him in this vehicle, so he's been having to go in a vehicle that is not as comfortable and really causes him pain. And she teared up because now, because of that one little uh, event that we had, it allowed her to fill that up and allowed for the next time that he travels to Little Rock that he's going to be in a little more comfort. If your policies are affecting the quality of life of children with cancer, your leadership, your vision for this country is definitely in question. And so as we talk to our friends and our neighbors about the election coming up, we need to really underscore that and highlight that. Uh, questions of are you, are you better off is one of the, the, the questions that we need to be asking a lot because we're not. We're not better off. And that can be seen across the across the d- different demographics of our country. So uh, excited to be here again. Excited that uh, Dave is out on getting him some vacation time. And um, 
And we'll be meeting again at 6.30 with Kevin Hunt, Israel Ortega at 7 from Libre, and then Paul Chapman at 9 o'clock until 10 o'clock with the Restore Hope. Good morning, Central Arkansas. Again, Ryan Norris setting in for Dave Ellswick, who is on vacation today. Again, well-deserved. Um, if you're just joining us, talking a little bit about the strategic oil reserve release, another 10 million barrels of oil from that reserve uh, being released by President Biden. Uh, this is already with our strategic oil reserve at a 40-year low. And we shouldn't be politicizing the reserve, and that's exactly what's happening here going and releasing this in hopes that uh, oil will will decrease the the cost of gasoline at the pump and that voters will not hold that against the administration in the upcoming elections but we're seeing that that is really very risky concerning uh, our national security when you look at how Russia is becoming more a little more desperate uh, they're losing their war in Ukraine uh, and who knows how that how that will will spin uh hopefully not out of control hopefully some someone's able to to bring that to a conclusion but that's a national security issue north korea is now launching more missiles uh, rattling sabers again and so why would we take a strategic oil reserve designed for national security purposes uh, to keep strategic infrastructure and transportation running uh, should we have uh, an emergency and politicize that. So anyone that would put our country at risk like that for political points, that we got to be talking to ourselves whether that's the leadership that we want to follow. Uh, also covered a little bit about the true cost of Washington tour that Americans for Prosperity has done across the nation. We also were here in Arkansas. In, we were in North Little Rock, Crossit, Pine Bluff, Fort Smith, Springdale, Bella Vista. And at some of these, we dropped the price of gasoline from whatever it was that day down to $2.38. We um, made up the difference at the pump for the the owners, but the individuals only paid the $2.38, showing that uh, that's the national average in January of 2021. So when you vote, it puts into place certain policies, and those policies can either help improve the quality of life for your family or it can decrease the quality of life for your family. Um, it really opened some eyes with people. We talked to hundreds of people, thousands of people, actually, uh, even here in Arkansas, and they all had the same thing. The cost of living is increasing. Inflation is uh, squeezing their paychecks to where they have too much month and not enough check. And if you're feeling like that, you need to be talking to your friends and to your neighbors and getting them to connect to those policies. Uh, one way of doing that, you can go to truecostofwashington.com. That is the Americans for Prosperity uh, tour page. It has on there uh, policies that we are saying would be helpful to decrease inflation, improve uh, quality of life for Americans, and restart that engine that was just blowing and going prior to 2021 uh, with our economy. One of the areas, again, is energy abundance and all of the above approach. We don't need to be picking winners and having the government pick winners and losers in energy based solely on idealism. Uh, it, again, individuals coming to us and saying, hey, I can't afford an, an $80,000 electric vehicle that the president wants me to buy. I can't do that. I've got to keep my 10-year-old car running. 
And that's a valid concern. And when you have individuals who actually were voters for the president starting to connect the dots that his policies are actually harming him, that's an interesting uh, dynamic that is developing there for the midterm elections. So uh, energy abundance and all of the above approach, but then also cut government spending. We're at $31 trillion in debt, and that debt service alone is is going to be really difficult uh, for us to pay. It's becoming more and more of a burden and a problem, and it's just going to be passed on to future generations. But eventually, that can will not be able to be kicked down down the road anymore, and we're going to have to come to terms with that. So another area of policy that Americans for Prosperity supports is uh, – reining in spending in discretionary and non-discretionary spending at the federal government level. Uh, just again, they just every time we turn around, they're turning on the spigots. And every time those spigots are turned on, we're either printing money or we are going at accumulating more debt. And that is decreasing the value of the U.S. dollar. So uh, cutting government spending and then removing unnecessary barriers to, to business. There are some regulations out there that exist that have been around for over 100 years, such as the Jones Act. This is an interesting little piece of, of policy that says that if you're a international ship and you come to one port in the U.S. and drop off goods, you can't go to another port. You have to offload everything and have that put onto U.S. ships, U.S. owned, with U.S. workers on it. Now, that sounds, you know, pro-U.S. Yes, we want all the, you know, we want to have everything be U.S. But what that sets up is it costs additional uh, time and uh, creates additional costs on top of those goods or in products that could be taken to another port on the same ship and at a lower cost. And things like that, you don't think about them. We don't think about them. We don't know about them most often. But that's just one example of how government policy makes what we buy, be it a car, televisions, you know, uh, food products that are shipped in from out of the country, makes it more expensive, decreasing our consumers' uh, a bit purchasing power and our ability to improve the life for our, for our families. So things like that we need to take a look at that just don't make sense, uh, removing these unnecessary barriers. So as we go throughout the day uh, thinking about this, uh, again, I urge you to get in contact with your friends and your family that don't connect the dots. I know Dave Ellswick's listening audience is an above-average educated group of individuals. Get out there and make contact. If you're not talking to someone that uh, that doesn't think exactly like you, then we're not making much of a difference. We've got to stop talking to each other and start getting out there and talking to people that don't look like us, talk like us, or go to the places that we go. And let them know that if you're feeling the crunch of the current economic uh, environment, this is connected to policies, and we do not need those policies to have a mandate in the upcoming election in November, that we need to be voting these policies down and putting into place leaders who care about the country and who want to see us thrive in our economy, that they are, they are individuals who care about uh, your family 
and that you have enough food on the table, that you have a house, you know, and a roof over your head, that you can put gasoline in your vehicle. So get out there and um, and make make those contacts. If you don't know how to do that, you can reach out to us at Americans for Prosperity. We train grassroots leaders all of the time. You can go to believeinar.com to get connected there, or just send us a direct email at infoar at afphq.org. So we... We host trainings. If you're like, Ryan, I'd like to get involved. I'd like to know what to do. How do I talk to my neighbors? Uh, how do I talk to my legislators? Uh, we can train you on that. We have a Grassroots Leadership Academy, and we can take care of that for you. So really excited uh, to connect with you. So reach out to us. That's infoar at afphq.org. Or go to believeinar.com, and you can make contact with us, and we can uh can help you hone your citizen activist uh, skill sets so that you can make an impact. If you're frustrated, you don't have to be. Come alongside us, come work with us, and uh, we'll all make a difference together. So uh, next up is going to be Kevin Hunt coming in to uh, speak with us from Lessons Learned. Excited to learn about the work that he does there with our at-risk youth here in the city of Little Rock. Catch you on the other side. Good morning, Central Arkansas. Again, Ryan Norris sitting in for Dave Ellswick, who is on vacation today, hoping that Dave has his toes in the sand somewhere and is enjoying this time off. Well-deserved, Dave. Uh, With me right now is uh, Kevin Hunt. He's the executive director of Lessons Learned, and he's a friend of mine. Kevin and I are now have done work for... How long now, Kevin? You know? Seems like forever. Seems like forever. <laughs> it does seem like forever. It's been a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Kevin and I uh, came into uh, to the same social sphere and uh, started deciding, hey, what, what can we do together to help uh, improve our state? And Kevin's given me a lot of great ideas to work on in, in state public policy. And, um, you know, Kevin... Lessons learned is a great is your passion. It's your mission. It's your your ministry is mm-hmm. the way that I that I mean you've described it to me. That's the way that I see it. Tell us a little bit about your story and then how that led up to uh, you developing lessons learned. Yeah, Ryan, thank you, man, and uh, just thankful for the opportunity to be here. Yeah, lesson learned. Uh, it came about as just a, a a lot of old bad habits. Of, if you want to say, and a lot of things I did when I was younger. So uh, my name is Kevin Hunt. Of course, I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas. I was born and raised. I, um, I had some challenging times in, in life, and uh, and and I allowed those excuses uh, to lead me down the road that I went down. Uh, I'm a middle school dropout. Uh, I stopped learning how to read and write when I was in elementary. I would say the sixth grade, but it could have easily been the fifth grade. Got involved with, uh, once I dropped out of school, I got involved heavily with gangs and drugs. Uh, I was just going down the wrong road, uh, lost and confused with no guidance. Uh, I had some personal challenges with, within my household. You know, mother was in and out of prison on drugs. Just that same typical story. And when I was, uh, went to prison when I was a teenager, did some time, came out, got right back involved with gangs and drugs. Uh, got shot a few times. Just all that stuff uh, that uh, 
a person that's lost and confused would do. Mm-hmm. And that's how I came about with lessons learned. Uh, I always thought about uh, my life and my story, what I went through, and I never wanted to see another young person have to go through whether it's female or male, or no matter what race that, that that person was. And I just wanted to start lessons learned, use my experience, restore that hope for young people, give them some guidance, um, uh, combat against gang activities, uh, just encourage them, support the, the schools and, and the administrators uh, with the, the challenges that they have in those schools. And so that's how Lessons Learned came back. I've created this curriculum, and it's been about five years now, and it has really been a, a, a blessing to me. It's, it's my ministry, Ryan, and I love doing it. Right, and you, you mentioned about giving giving the kids hope because your story doesn't just end with the the struggles that you had as a mm-hmm. kid, but, yeah. but it... it, it it went on, and you have definitely uh, improved yourself uh, in multiple ways. Tell us a little bit about that transformation. Mm-hmm. How you know you had, one day you had an epiphany. Yeah, uh, grandmother had encouraged me to uh, go back to school, but I used to when I got out of prison for seven years, and I used to just tell my grandma, uh, "Yeah, I'm gonna go." But the truth is, I knew I wasn't going because I didn't. I couldn't read. I couldn't write it. I don't know if my grandmother really knew that, but after about seven years of telling her that lie and uh, lying, just not just lying to myself and uh, what just meaning what I thought I couldn't do, I went to Shorter College Adult Education Center and got around some good, loving, caring people who said, who believed in me that didn't know me, who loved on me, first time ever seeing me. They encouraged me, just asked me, just keep coming back. And uh, because of that encouragement, because of that love and that compassion and that empathy and patience that they have for me, and which is the same that I give back to the students, uh, I was able to believe first before I mm-hmm. ever was able to write that one day I can be able to read, write, and spell. And I got my, and I went on past my GED, got my GED, went to Philander Smith College, uh, and, and had that same mindset that I, I'm ready, I know I can learn, I believe I can, and, and I finished at Philander with honors, and then ended up getting my master's degree at Webster University. And I had opportunity to work in the governor's office, uh, governor's, matter of fact, Governor Mike Beebe's office, and I know some would say, how were you able to do that? You've right. been incarcerated. Well, that's a whole other part of my God story that I can get in one day with you all. Right. Um, you know, the governor, uh, BB took a, took a chance on you yep. and uh, put you into some really interesting places. And, yes. and because of that, you are, you're requested to come and tell your story to mm-hmm. youth and to adults in adult education mm-hmm. across the state, mm-hmm. because you're the ideal of mm-hmm. what we would like those programs to be like. Yes. And to what to and to produce. Yes, and it's been a blessing because of my uh, uh, because of my story, my transformation. Uh, it has put me in rooms that I would never thought I'd ever be in, and and put me in front of people and just to hear people's story. Like so many people in Arkansas uh, has some type of challenge, and it may not be just a challenge that. I the things that I went through, but it's just their their kids may be just on drugs and it look hopeless. And I always remind them that there there is an uh, there is hope still available, and don't give up on your kid or your your brother, or your husband, or whatever. And so, just restoring that hope in that way, because like I said, my story is my God's story. I say that all the time, and uh, and just being in front of these spaces. Uh, to be able to allow someone to see my story where they can go back and tell some one of their loved ones, like, hey, I just met this guy. Right. So <clears throat> give us a little, a, a quick rundown of um, 
what you do through lessons learned. Yeah, so like I said, I have a student, uh, sometimes it's called a student uh, development program, uh, um, and I, you can you can call me a mentor, you can call me a behavior interventionist, you, you can call me a lot of things. All I want to do is get the job. So one of the things I do, I go up, to, I'm in five schools uh, in, in, in a, a Little Rock School District, and, uh, and then all those schools in Southwest Little Rock, and what I'm trying to do is just follow those kids from elementary all across the state to Southwest High School. And so one of the things I do, I work with the teachers, and not just the teachers and administrators, I work with whoever works in that building mm-hmm. that can identify some kids that I may need to connect with and I build that rapport that relationship with the kid we hold each other accountable and uh, because I can't do any of the work that I have yes I have a curriculum and that's great but if I don't have that relationship then that curriculum means it don't mean anything just like now for instance school has been in place since August I am still connecting with kids so once I can connect with kids, then I'm able to guide those kids right and I may not get into my curriculum until four months uh, into the school year, right? But it's all about the relationships. Now I'm using things that I have in my curriculum, but I'm just not bringing them always in the classroom setting. I may talk to them in the hallway, mm-hmm. in the cafeteria, outside for their break, wherever it may be. It's about ministering to those kids, right? Restoring that hope because a lot of those kids are hopeless, and then the gang stuff on top of that. And so, it's a it's a great job. Yeah, and I I want to definitely get in at some point talking about how the work you are doing is is directly related to decreasing crime, violence among our youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one thing that I want to share with you because I just love this um, that. That time that we had your kids come over to the gaming yes, location, yes. so we 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 uh, uh, lessons learned in Americans for Prosperity uh, Foundation mm-hmm. put together a, a pro project to where uh, Kevin's kids came to a uh, video gaming lounge and. Um, they were able to play all the games they wanted, virtual reality games, computer mm-hmm. games, Xbox, uh, yeah. uh, PlayStation, and. <clears throat> We had a, had a really good time, but what was really interesting is when they heard from the owner of the store. Yeah, Jesse. Uh, yeah, Jesse, at the own, the owner of uh, of Spec Ops uh, Lounge. He said, "You know, this is my this was my dream. I was in the military. I came out. Um, I um, I had this dream of creating my own video game lounge. Here it is. I'm really excited about it." And their eyes lit up. They're mm-hmm. like, "You own this place?" And mm-hmm. he's like, "Yes, yes, I mm-hmm. I own this." And they're like, could I own a place like this? Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, one day you could. Well, can I work for you? And he's like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, you you can work for me. And those kids started asking for jobs right then and there to do. Some of them grabbed the Windex bottles, started cleaning windows, got behind the counter. There's like 10 kids behind him while he's checking people in. He's showing the kids the process. But that fire lit in those kids' eyes Mm -hmm. about a possibility for themselves, Kevin, that is totally worth the work that you do when you see that Exposure. Like, they probably would hadn't seen that, and it made them feel like that one day I couldn't. It's so funny because on yesterday, one of the students that uh, his cousin went Came with, which we call at the end of the year celebration with partnership with America for Prosperity. His cousin uh, was at one of the schools I was at yesterday, and uh, it was his birthday. <laughs> and he said, "We went to Spec Ops this weekend." Oh wow! He like, Mister Hunt, uh, I want to go back with you if you go again because he didn't get a chance to go. Oh. Uh, and it was just so funny that you you brought that up because yesterday one of my uh, 
one of the kids at one of the schools just mentioned it. And it was a great experience because it, it's not about just me uh, ministering to them. You know, you want to expose them and, and, and remind them, like, the pathway to success is about really just about what you make it. Like it's not yeah. it's not hard as you think it is. You're just gonna take some discipline in these particular area, but you can do it. You can be that business person, that CEO, or whatever you may want to do. And that's about restoring that hope because a lot of these kids right now are just kind of hopeless because right. of what they see every day. Right. Yeah. Their mm-hmm. their their life is the same day mm-hmm. over and over and over mm-hmm. again. And when you're able to provide a vision of a future that can mm-hmm. be better and then you set them up with the supports to get there mm-hmm. that is what changes the culture the society mm-hmm. changes that life and it's generational you know yes. there's there's going to be one of those kids that's going to come out of that group that they may not own a gaming lounge but they may own yes. a business one day yes. because mm-hmm. for just a small period of time one business owner gave them something to do that made them feel productive. I mean, mm-hmm. man, those kids were working hard that day, cleaning up cleaning mm-hmm. up around the, the shop and all of that. That was very impressive how quickly their their mind their mind consciousness yep. expanded. Yep. yep, I said that that day just will, yeah. Yep. And um and again this is this gives them an idea of like, hey, if if this is a vision for my future, I don't want to do anything between now and then to mess that mm-hmm. up. And uh, mm-hmm. I find that just so inspiring, Kevin, about the work that you do. And um, and we're coming up on on a break in just in just a few seconds. But I want to ask you some more questions about some of the success stories that you're seeing. Okay. But we'll catch you all on the other side of the break and talking to Kevin Hunt with Lessons Learned. Good morning, everyone. If you're just uh, joining us, we're with Kevin Hunt. He is the executive director of Lessons Learn, works with our children in our Little Rock school districts um, around just the issues that they face in their life, trying to help these kids that would be categorized as at risk, highly likely to possibly become justice involved. And Kevin works with those youth to give them a vision of a future that is better than what they have envisioned for themselves and to keep them on a path to being, you know, productive citizens, health, healthy individuals. And so, Kevin, you know, we talked a little bit about your story, uh, about how that connects to the work you do. Uh, Little Rock is, is currently facing some, some really dire situations with violent crime mm-hmm. and, you know, crime overall. Uh, how does the work you do connect to that in, in, in mitigating that? Yes. Uh, so, you know, um, understanding, that, of course, I come from this game space, uh, was involved with it in the early 90s, end of the 80s, early 90s. And so I understand how that how that works in this in this city. And so every time I hear about uh, different shootings and uh, 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 or, or murders in our city, I always think about the impact that it has on the kids at the school, whether it be in elementary or all the way because elementary to high school, because that are those people, uh, girls and guys, are their aunties, mothers, cousins, brothers, sisters, they're their relatives. And so one thing I do, uh, I try to go in and just kind of check the climate at the schools and most more more than anything, the high schools. And because and, and I understand who is who from every neighborhood, who claims what in every neighborhood and school, because that's important for me to know what's going on and who I'm dealing with. And so when I'm working with those kids, with those young people, I always remind them that because I always remind them of, about um, 
uh, I teach them how to deal with it. In other words, mm-hmm. how to deal with someone that they know that had just got murdered, and 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 so that helps diffuse a lot of things while I'm at the school because sometimes those young men just want to express themselves, and I'm there to be able to listen to them and give them some guidance and remind them that. Uh, uh, violence is not the answer right. and it has been very successful for me been really really good for me because I'm listening to these kids every day you know I'm not and I say this a lot I'm not uh, I'm not stopping uh, the next generation of, of shooters I'm preventing tomorrow's shooters right. because if you look at the, the you look at the records uh, there are more or just as many juveniles 12, 13, 14, 15 year old kids having shootings and stuff around the city than it is 25, 30, 40 year old kids. Right. And so my thing is I'm just trying to stop the tomorrow's shooter and so the work that I'm doing the relationship that I build with them has helped me you know even though I may not see it Ryan Mm -hmm. but I know it's helping preventing some of the stuff in our school and then the stuff that that bleeds in from the streets as well too. Right. Right. Yeah that's amazing work that you do and, and I've had the chance to see that up close a couple of times, and it's amazing uh, how these these kids are responding to you. Um, what what's maybe one of the success stories that you could tell us? Uh, yeah, uh, let me say I, I have many, but this is this is one that I I love that happened this summer at summer school. Uh, I got there, a lot of kids uh, was just sometimes kids don't understand the consequences and they don't process things because they still nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So right. this was particular middle school. I had, uh, and I can just tell you time and time how. Uh, just even on yesterday, I was meeting with a young lady, and I had another young lady with me who I've been mentoring. And so this young lady who's in the eighth grade, when I was talking to the sixth grader, she jumped in and said, when she jumped in and said, and spoke directly to this young lady and said, hey, look, when I came to the school, I was fighting and scratching and screaming and getting in trouble all the time as a sixth grader. She said, if it had not been for Mr. Hunt having a conversation with me, being with me, showing me he cared about it, he loved on me, and right. guiding me, I would have still been in trouble. Now, as an eighth grader, I look back at myself like, oh, my gosh, I was acting like that. And so it felt good that what I shared with her, the guidance that I was giving her, she was able to give back and mentor to another another young person. And then another success story that I love, this is one I was going to mention at first, uh, when I went to summer school this year, with the kids got there they was kind of all over the place six seven eight graders and i had a talk with so many of them ryan right it was just all over the place and i and i just remember saying these just small little words for about the first couple of weeks i like if you fail in the six seven eight grade summer school you will be back in that same grade and your friends gonna move on everybody gonna look at you as a oh you flunk you flunk you flunk and i tell you <laughs> tell you the honest god true when those interim reports came out, right? I'm talking about I had kids bringing me their grades saying, look, Mr. Hunt, look at my grade, look at my grade, look at my grade. And that made me feel awesome. good because they heard me. That's awesome. See, and, man, Kevin, you just can't put can't put the, a value on what you're doing because it does. It, ha- it will have a generational impact. So <clears throat> how can uh, listeners learn a little more about lessons learned? And how could listeners maybe get connected to Lessons Learned to be a help to you? Yeah, you can check out my website. It's klhuntsr.com. 
or uh, tell you a little bit more if it has a contact. But also you can give me a call at 501-993-6354 or email me at klhuntsr at gmail. And I answer all my phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> that that's true. That's true. In fact, um, I, my wife gets gets on to me. She's like, "You talking to Kevin again? Talking to Kevin again?" Yeah. But uh, it's just amazing the work that you're doing. It does directly connect to making Little Rock a safer place and giving kids that don't see a a bright future for themselves uh, a vision of one. And that's what I see as being necessary, is giving our kids that vision of a future that's better off mm-hmm. than the one that they're currently mm-hmm. in. So give us again um, the website and the uh, the email. My website is klhuntsr.com, and my email is klhuntsr at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, Kevin, thanks for uh, coming in and talking to us and letting the listeners know a little bit about the work that you're doing. Hopefully someone will connect with you. And uh, if, you, um, if you're interested, go to the, the website, go to that email, get connected to Kevin Hunt, doing great work here in uh, Little Rock. So, Kevin, appreciate you, brother. Look forward thank to you. doing a lot more work with you in the future. Yes, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Mayor of Prosperity, for all things, everything that they've been doing for us. Well, uh, coming up on the 7 o'clock hour, we'll be meeting with Israel Ortega, who is a uh, one in the leadership with the Libre Initiative. We'll be having a conversation with him about Hispanic and Latino citizens in our country and kind of what their political views and moves are right now. So look forward to that with Israel Ortega at the 7 o'clock hour. Arkansas. This is Ryan Norris sitting in for Dave Ellswick, who is on vacation. Uh, if you're just joining us, um, we uh, we don't have the Facebook uh, live going today, but you can go to 1011fmtheanswer.com to uh, follow the podcast, which will be up and streaming soon. Uh, we previously had Kevin Hunt on talking about the work that he does with our youth here in uh, central Arkansas with the Lessons Learned program that he has created. And now we're going to be speaking with Mr. Israel Ortega. He is with the Libre Initiative. And uh, we're going to have some interesting conversation. Israel, are you are you there? Hey, good morning, Ryan. Yes, I am. Hey, good morning. Well, man, you know, I was just listening to the news and they were covering how um, the GOP has been really reaching out to the Hispanic Latino community and trying to build authentic relationships there, you know, hosting uh, uh, ceremonies, citizenship ceremonies, and uh, doing things to uh, 
to really get the message of conservatism into in, into the community. And I know that's work that the Libre Initiative is also somewhat doing as its own nonprofit. But uh, Israel, give us a little bit about you know what is Libre about. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity, Ryan. Uh, yeah, so uh, the Libre Initiative is uh, is a group, uh, like you mentioned, uh, uh, nonprofit, nonpartisan group that uh, started about uh, ten years ago, uh, a little over ten years ago now. And, uh, and basically, uh, the premise uh, behind um, what we do is that uh, we believe that uh, if you empower individuals, um, including the Latino community. Uh, you can do uh, amazing things, and um, and really, is it, it, w- the way we saw it, Brian, was that there was a, a gap or there was a, a need uh, in a lot of these Latino advocacy groups where their approach was always about growing the size of government, and uh, and the Libre Initiative um, was created in, in part to to differentiate 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 ourselves from that approach. Um, and uh, I'm happy to say that um, you know we're doing really well. We're, we've expanded into several states, including uh, here, here in Arkansas, which is exciting. And um, just the, the type of response we're seeing from the community in terms of folks who say, you know, uh, I came to this country to work. Uh, I came uh, right. to this country for, for prosperity and opportunity. And, and that's something that uh, is resonating with a lot of folks. Yeah, well, you know, with uh, is with uh, Israel Rodriguez, who is now the uh, grassroots engagement director for Libra here in the state of Arkansas, conversations that I've been having with him are very positive about that message right there that, hey, the American dream is something that attracts us, something that we want to work for, and uh, that we're willing to pay our dues uh, to, you know, to prove that that's what, what we're about. And... Um, it, it is fascinating how quickly that community is growing. The Libre community is growing here in the state of Arkansas. Uh, but, you, but you're exactly right. It, it resonates with hardworking folks that top-down approaches of government are not beneficial to them. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and this is, this is something we need to pay attention to uh, if you are of a conservative, libertarian, center-right mindset, because there are indicators within the political dynamic right now that this community is more open than ever before to these ideas of um, you know bottom-up solutions individualism free markets are you seeing that in the work that you're doing yeah absolutely all right i mean i think that um just to go back real quick to, to your point about why this is particularly important for uh, the local community here in arkansas is um, the, the, the South, the American South, has seen probably the biggest increase of the Latino population um, than other centers of, of the country. And obviously that has um, implications uh, at a policy political level. Uh, you, mean you see states uh, like, like Georgia, for example, uh, you know, close races that were decided by a few hundred uh, a thousand votes. And so that's where it makes a difference. In terms of the, the support you're seeing for uh, conservative uh, policies, you're seeing uh, places, you see polls just now, you know, NBC had a poll this week that showed that, you know, that gap between Republicans and Democrats among Latino voters is closing. Um, so it, it makes it really interesting, you know, in, in, in races like uh, the ones we're seeing this year where you know, uh, the Latino vote and, and could, could really make a difference, you know, between who controls uh, Congress. And obviously that has implications about what kind of policies we enact. Right. Because the projections are that the Hispanic Latino community will be the majority minority 
uh, in the not-so-distant future. And so it is uh, imperative that that they be communicated to. And again, just going back mm-hmm. to the news that we just listened to, the GOP reaching out is again that realization is happening that this is a community that could potentially be allies for those that that appreciate America's free markets, uh, America's individualism, and uh, again the the right to of the individual to try to forge out their own life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Uh, so I find that right. that really fascinating. Yeah. It's starting to really as, as we move towards the election, I'm hearing it more and more, and it's kind of exciting. Yeah, it is. It, it, you know, it, it, this is something that um, you know uh, the Libra Initiative. We've been talking about this how the, how the demographic is, is, is diverse. You know, we, we reject um, a lot of this. Um, you know, very very extreme uh, left political ideas, and um, and we're finally starting to see that in, in the polls and in the election outcomes. And I think that's where that's why it, it, it's exciting that uh, you know this you know what we've been saying for 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 some time now is actually coming to fruition. Um, and uh, you know, you're seeing this in in lots of parts of the country, Ryan. But I think that you know, two places where uh, come to mind. I think the first one has to be South Texas. You know, you mm-hmm. have places that voted uh, Republican for the first time in 50, 100 years, you know, uh, which is which is pretty amazing. And, and you go down uh, to the valley where um, uh, uh, Daniel Garza, the president, the founder of the Libra Initiative, lived. And, uh, you know, they'll tell you that um, some of these, uh, the, the green energy policies, you know, that, that, that directly impacts the livelihood of a lot of people. And it starts questioning. It makes them question, you know, like this this allegiance to one party just because their parents voted that one way. Um, you know, they're starting to you know second guess that and, and ask, you know, why 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 am I doing that if it's going to uh, you know hurt my bottom line? It's going to hurt uh, my my ability to provide for my family. And I think that's why you're seeing a change. Right. Um, you know that that. We, I talked a little bit about what Americans for Prosperity had been doing, and Libre has done this in the state of Arkansas as well, some of the true cost of Washington and how people are starting to connect the dots that who they vote for and the policies they represent actually do impact the quality of life. And when you're seeing inflation hitting the family, it's not just hitting you know uh, your, your stereotypical, shall we say, American, but... Mm-hmm. What we're hearing from individuals in the Hispanic communities that this is making it rough on on us as well. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as you know, Ryan, uh, you know, a lot of inflation hurts everybody, but um, especially hurts folks who have less disposable income. And um, you know, the gap is closing, but uh, you know, you look at a lot of the metrics out there. Uh, Logically, it's still you know lagging behind in a lot of uh, economic indicators, including. Mm-hmm. Um, savings, and I think that's why. Yeah, you're seeing this kind of response uh, from folks who are who are just saying, you know, this is this is such an amazing thing that you guys are providing. As you pointed out, you know, we have a, a presence here in Arkansas, and so um, that we had a, a true cost event that that, um, that talked about, you know, talked to folks about not just look, we're providing, you know, this this debit card to help, uh, you know, uh, you know, cover some of the costs, but also. I think more importantly, in some ways, you know, talking to folks about what's driving inflation. And I think that's where, you know, the value is for, for groups like ours, where we are able to help folks understand, you know, the policies and how policies have, have a direct impact on on our lives. And I think that's that's the that's the beauty of, of, of the work we're doing in terms of, of educating. And again, going back to what I, how I started, right, which is empowering individuals. And, that, and that's ultimately what we want to do. Right. Well, you know, 
we're kind of hitting around it a little, little bit right now, but um, from what you're learning, what what do Latinos and Hispanics care about? What are the issues that are top of their mind right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you look at the polling, Ryan, and, and uh, it, it's pretty consistent. It's been consistent for some time now. Um, jobs in the economy, uh, inflation, um, health care, uh, education. Um, uh, you know, interestingly enough, you know, immigration is typically not, um, you know, one of the top three issues for Latinos. You know, a lot of times, you know, there's this misconception out there that uh, Latinos are single issue voters, you know, just care about immigration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, it turns out, you know, uh, Latino voters are, are, are like everybody else, you know, uh, would care about uh, uh, jobs in the economy and providing for our families. And so um, I think this is why, you know, you're seeing this also the, the polls, you know, shifting against uh, the power the, the party in power right now because you know folks don't feel like uh, Washington is, is is doing anything to alleviate inflation and so in many cases making it worse and so I think this is why also you're seeing Hispanic you know voting or telling pollsters yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna vote differently I'm gonna vote for a different party in uh, come November uh, and that's why the numbers are playing out the way they are it's just very interesting to me that we're we're getting this uh, worked out that you know hey they're not a monolithic in the way that they think or their political philosophies, and we need to do some, you know, need to do more to reach out to them. We're going to go to a break real quick, and uh, again, we're talking with Israel Ortega with the Libre Initiative, talking about the Hispanic, Hispanic and Latino uh, community and uh, some of the political dynamics going on that are very exciting right now. We're back on the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Ryan Norris sitting in for Dave Ellswick, we ha- who is on vacation. We have Israel Ortega with the Libre Initiative uh, on the phone with us. And, um, you know, Israel learning some interesting things about how uh, Hispanic Latino communities are becoming more interested in, uh, in supporting uh, candidates, particularly, who are free market, free enterprise, individualism uh you know, kind kind of philosophies. And uh, in general, we thought, you know, oh, this is very monolithic. If you talk to those that don't talk to the community, they think, oh, lost cause, we're, we, there's nothing we can do there. But we're not seeing that to be the case. Can you give us some examples that Libre has seen about how his, the, this community has leaned into, with their vote, in changing the direction of some of their states? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think, um, you know, a couple of places come to mind, uh, uh, you know, right outside of D.C. and in, in, uh, in Virginia, there's a large uh, Latino population. Uh, you know, you had a lot of Central Americans who emigrated here in the 80s, but since then there have been others. And, um, you know, you're seeing, you know, uh, during the uh, the governor's race last year, you saw, uh, you know, the, part of the issue is that the polling is still not quite there yet. A lot of these, these exit polls. Uh, are not as, as accurate, but, but you look at, at some of the counties, at least the precincts where some of the, the vote for Yunkin um, uh, took place, and, and they're, they're places where there's a lot of Latino, uh, there's a big Latino population. So mm-hmm. I think that that's an area where that made a difference in that in that critical race. Um, uh, it, you know, uh, more recently this year, uh, you're seeing uh, Myra Flores, you know, I was saying earlier before the break about, about the Valley, uh, about uh, Latinos there voting. Uh, Republican uh, Myra Flores won a special election uh, seat um, earlier this year, 
Um, and and she's somebody who, who just kind of burst into the national stage. And so she's somebody else that, um, you know, again, showing how, you know, that shift is real. Uh, and then finally, another one in, in Virginia, um, the, the Libre Initiative Action, the political arm is supporting uh, Yezzy Vega. Um, she's outside of uh, Richmond and parts of Charlottesville. Um, and, uh, and she's running for, for, for Congress. It's, it's going to be a tight race. But again, I think it just shows you that not only are Latinos, Latinos voting, uh, for for conservative uh, policies, but but they're also running themselves. You know, they're they're putting themselves themselves mm-hmm. out there uh, for for elected office, and I think that's pretty exciting. Yeah, that is. It's it's very very exciting. I think. Um, because we're seeing that here in the state too, that there's more and more interest to become a political community, and to I've spoke to several. Uh, Latinos who are interested in running for office, and uh, they're they're making plans for the future. And their future, the plans are are uh, luckily uh, aligned with you know free market enterprises and and you know again individualism and and mm-hmm. all of the wonderful things politically, philosophically, that make America the great country that it is. And they yeah. they see that, and they not only want to be a part of it, but they want to sustain it, and right. that's that's yeah. exciting for me. Yeah, I know it, it is for me as well, and and I think you know, uh, for me, Ryan, this is <clears throat> this is personal. Um, I was uh, born in Mexico. Uh, I came to this country when I was young, and and part of um, what my parents instilled in me was that uh, you know this is this is a place of opportunity that if you work hard, uh, you can accomplish anything, and I, I'm living out that dream, and so I think that. And, that, and that's, a, that's a story that I just laid out. It's a story that obviously, um, you know, other immigrant populations in the past, you know, whether it was the Irish or the Germans before, you know, the Latino population now, uh, it, it's something that, you know, has obviously spanned several uh, generations in our country. Uh, but I think the important thing here is that um, just connecting it to the policies is that, you know, one of the things that, that I think re- really resonates with the Latino community that we engage with is that, um, we need to, to support policies that uh, won't won't create um, the types of conditions that led us to come to this country. You know, you know, in other words, you know, more taxes, more regulations, right. big government. I mean, those are the things that drove us here. And so, I think that's uh, that's the message that, that we're trying to uh, remind people of. And uh, and people get it, Ryan. It's just like you know, a lot of times you know you're you're up against you know uh, other forces that that, mm-hmm. that make it harder to get the message out there. Right. Well, as we participated alongside Libre with um, True Cost of Washington events. I heard from individuals who were from Venezuela, Argentina, mm-hmm. uh, from El Salvador, from Mexico, and you hit exactly on what they were saying. They're like, you know, we came here because we wanted a different, better life, and the countries we were in were doing all of these policies that made it impossible for us to to improve our quality of life, but America, because of the way that it is, because of its love for freedom and for and for uh, the individual initiative to be maximized uh, in your society, this is where we want to be. We want to be Americans. And uh, it is really, it was really um, fascinating to hear because Arkansas is to a to a place to where we have communities now that are based around those uh, th- those cultures. You know, the Venezuelan community now, we have the El Salvadorian, we have the Mexican community. So we have a fairly mature Hispanic-Latino uh, community here, but everybody that I've talked to is just excited that Libre is here because they're like, there's an organization that 
that believes in what we truly believe, and now we can potentially have a, a voice uh, to to put into the political process to help get liberty-loving candidates uh, even elected here in Arkansas. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Uh, and I think that that's the, the big thing here is that it starts uh, by uh, by educating uh, folks about the, the role of government. It, it talks about, um, it, it starts with, with with uh, reminding people, um, again, especially immigrant immigrant communities, um, that part of what makes this country uh, unique and special is that you know um, we don't get our rights from uh, from the government. You know, we get our rights from the creator. So you start talking about about these you know, founding constitutional principles of ours, um, and, and and it really opens folks' eyes and, and, and it makes them kind of understand, you know, the unique uh, place we are. Um, in the world, but also in the history of this world, you know, and so I think that um, that that's what you know makes people, uh, in many ways, you know, get out of their you know comfort zone and, and put themselves out there um, and run for office because they they realize just how how important it is uh, to preserve uh, these freedoms, and so uh, it's really exciting, Ryan, and, and, and I'm I'm just fortunate enough to to work for an organization like ours that uh, does this kind of work. Yeah, it is quite awesome. And um, if someone wanted to get connected to the Libre Initiative, uh, Izzy, what's some of the best ways of going about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a couple places. Uh, I would start with the website. Uh, just type in BeLibre, B-E, uh, the word Libre, L-I-B-R-E dot org. Um, most of the content is in, is in English. Um, and you can just check out the work we're doing. There's a, there's a good blog there that has a lot of uh, updates. We just talked about the True Cost of Washington campaign. There's there's some stuff there. Um, you can also find us on, on Facebook, uh, just typing in the, the Libre Initiative. Um, and we're also on Instagram. Um, and I think those are maybe, maybe three good good places to start. And, and you know, obviously, uh, reach out to, to, to myself, to you, or, uh, or Israel in the state. Yeah. So, yes, uh, if you'd like to reach out to someone in the state, Israel Rodriguez is the Grassroots Engagement Director for Libre. Um, his email is irodriguez, I-R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z, at blibre dot org or you can reach him at four seven nine six five three six four eight six and kind of excited uh Israel, uh, we're having our a Libre is having a Hispanic Heritage Month celebration in Fort Smith on the seventh. That's tomorrow at three p.m. And uh, the president of Libre, uh, Daniel Garza, is going to be there uh, to address uh, everyone. So we're really pumped about that. Yeah, yeah, I am too. Uh, I wish I could be down there, but uh, I cannot. But it's going to be an amazing event. Yeah, he has an amazing story. Well, we're going to go to a break. And uh, on the backside, we're going to talk to uh, Israel Ortega a little more about some of the political races going on. And I know he keeps up closely with those, so we'll find a little more information on it. So coming up soon, uh, we have at the 9 o'clock hour, Paul Chapman with the Restore Hope. And we'll finish out this segment with uh, Israel Ortega of Libre Initiative. So uh, be sure to stay with us, and we'll catch you on the backside of the break. Good morning. We're here with 101.1 FM, The Answer, Dave Ellswick Show. This is Ryan Norris sitting in for uh, Dave Ellswick, who is on vacation. Uh, The Facebook Live is not working today, so you can go to 1011fmtheanswer.com to uh, download the podcast, stream it there. Um, have Israel Ortega with us, who is with the Libre Initiative. We've been talking about the uh, 
dynamic shifts that are happening in the Hispanic and Latino uh, uh, vote and the support that they are now throwing behind more than ever uh, uh, conservative-minded candidates and uh, who are going to unleash economic opportunity that support individualism and liberty. And that's very, very heartening uh, for those uh, of us in this state. We're seeing that the Hispanic Latino population is growing to where soon it will be the majority minority group in the United States. And uh, it's awesome to hear that they are now seeing and opening up that policies that are top down that are big government policies just do not work and that they are leaning more towards the smaller government and wanting more freedoms and more liberties. So that's awesome to hear, Israel. Uh, But I know you track a lot more than just what goes on in the Hispanic Latino communities. Everyone is watching the national elections, really uh, interested in the Senate. Uh, What are some of the top Senate races that we need to be paying attention to and what do we need to know about them? Yeah, absolutely, uh, Brian. So I think, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, if we were having this conversation, um, it looked like uh, Democrats uh, were probably going to hang on to the Senate. Um, all the, the polling suggested uh, as much. Uh, but uh, since then, you know, um, really after after Labor Day, you, you're starting to see that um, some of these races, particularly Pennsylvania, uh, <clears throat> particularly Georgia, um, even other other uh, races, you know, like uh, as far west as Washington State, where uh, you're seeing Democrats um, either a couple points behind or in some cases uh, right there with Republicans. And so I think what this, this uh, to me, suggests, Ryan, is that it's going to be a very tight um, Senate race. Um, it's going to be a, a, a race obviously defined by some of the key issues we've been talking about this hour, including um, inflation and the economy. Um, and ultimately, I think, you know, this is where, um, you know, the parties really um, show their true colors is, you know, to get out the vote. You know, how can they mobilize their voters? And so mm-hmm. um, these, these next few weeks are going to be critical um, in deciding, you know, ultimately if, if Democrats hang on to the Senate uh, or if Republicans, you know, Republicans are, are slightly favored to win the House. And so I think for, for Democrats, a nightmare scenario would be them losing both the House and the Senate. Right, right. And. So how how are things shaping up? Like right now, you mentioned Pennsylvania, and um, some of us may not be tracking it quite as closely. We're in Arkansas. We're very fortunate to be sending you know we send policy champions, and uh, we don't have you know, general elections that are too close. Uh, but what's what's going on? Like for example, in in Pennsylvania, that sounds like an interesting race. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, in Pennsylvania, you've got uh, a Democrat uh, by the name of John Fetterman. Um, uh, up against um, uh, Mehmet, uh, Mehmet Oz, uh, Dr. Oz. Um, it's a race that uh, uh, has gotten a lot of attention in part because of, uh, of Dr. Oz, but also because of, of John Fetterman. And, um, you know, he's been um, uh, a little bit uh, shy in terms of getting out there. He, he's, he's battled some, some health issues. And so um, you're seeing, you know, either even publications like, uh, like the Washington Post um, here in D.C. that, um, are basically, you know, uh, encouraging uh, John Fetterman to, <clears throat> to to debate uh, Dr. Oz to, to get out there to mm-hmm. have a conversation, and I think uh, that's um, that's a race where uh, you're seeing you're seeing a tight. This is a race that you know uh, a few weeks ago uh, Fetterman was up by, by several points, and now it's tightening. Um, and again, I think the, the issues there um, 
are, are the issues we just talked about, but again, uh, but some other issues too. You know, you, places like Philadelphia and elsewhere, crime is is becoming a more dominant issue as well. Yeah. Um, and this is something that Republicans are are talking about, and they're really putting a, a spotlight on on some of the policies that uh, Democrats have supported in the past. Right. It it had been like a solid D uh, in the beginning of the uh, the campaign and now it's moving to leans and in some instances into toss-up categories yeah yeah pretty remarkable you know this is a state um that has voted uh democrat um in the past you know obviously we know there are pockets in pennsylvania that are that are more republican but uh you know i think that to me the the issue that uh, i'm watching is just this idea that um, you know, voters want transparency. Voters want to be told the truth, um, even if it, if it hurts. Um, and I think that the fact that Fetterman has been so so shy about getting out there, uh, not being more forceful uh, in terms of talking about his record um, and, and debating, you know, Dr. Oz, I think that that, that may be hurting him. And so uh, that's a race that, that I'm watching. Um, another race, uh, you know, that I'm watching as well is, is what's happening in Georgia. There's a lot to unpack there. Probably uh, would take us an hour to do that, but I think <laughs> suffice to say that it's it's a it's a it's a race that I think is important in the sense that uh, you know for for such a long time uh, uh, Georgia has been solid Republican, uh, pretty reliable red state, uh, but uh, you know the the trend lines are shifting in a way where there's a lot more younger people there. You know, a lot of folks moving to Georgia. And 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 the, just to go back real quick to the demographic changes, I mean that's another race, another state that's seen a huge influx of Latino voters, and so I think that's why you're seeing uh, both parties really uh, put a lot of resources into that state because uh, it's going to be a critical race in, ter- in determining the outcome of the of the Senate elections. Right. It, it was showing here. I was reading an article that said that Georgia, that uh, President Biden barely carried it with 0.23 percent. So even slight swings of whoever can get out their base could mean that that Herschel Walker would would go to the Senate. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think this is why it's so important. I think another race, uh, too, that I'm watching, Ryan, is, is Nevada. Uh, this is a race that um, has uh, Adam Locksell and uh, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto. Um, it's, it's another race where um, the Latino vote is going to be really, really important. Um, the, obviously, it's also a state that has a large... Uh, union um uh, presence um and uh it's a race that you know again a few weeks ago it looked like captain cortez master was going to kind of coast in um it seemed like some of her her attacks on um Max salt were resonating uh but again i think that the the economy and, and the fact that inflation is just hurting so many uh in that state um is, is starting to um you know uh have folks question you know whether they want to continue sending the same same people back to washington um, and, and so I think this is why Cortez Masters on the defenses, why you see um, Chuck Schumer and others, you know, uh, flying out there, uh, pouring resources mm-hmm. out there because they, they see that she's pretty vulnerable. Right. Well, uh, I just happened to be out in um, out there just last week, and I was noticing, of course, that gas prices for them were much higher than gas prices for us here in Arkansas, and that there were a lot of conversations uh, among my Uber drivers about how that's impacting their bottom lines and has cascaded across all of the industries, particularly the service industries uh, there in Nevada. So uh, that that's very that's fascinating to um, 
to see that that is, again, kind of tightening up. I think that there's a lot of hope being placed on the Senate as, as at least being the backstop for uh, a lot of the bad policies that we're seeing uh, out there, and that it's going to be the working class, again, that will make the difference in this. And when they're seeing, uh, you know, one gentleman in one of our True Cost events, he said this is the first time he's been able to, like, really top off his his work truck, and it's mm-hmm. it's costing him more to do business. I've been talking to uh, some of our our allies that work in the area of uh, of homelessness, and they're having individuals who had been homed now falling back into homelessness because they can't afford all of the other uh, energy costs, food costs, right. everything else like that. So we're seeing our economy has been in a regression. Uh, since uh, about 2021, and and I think that's going to play heavily on the minds of of um, of Arkansans. In fact, uh, it was um, Bill Clinton, you know, famous Arkansan that uh, you may have heard of, is he? Uh, <laughs> right. Who you know talked about you know it's the economy. You know yeah. that's what usually yeah. it's about, and right now our economy is uh, really in a tight tight space for a lot a lot of people. Uh, so we're keeping an keeping an eye on that. Um, are there any other than economy? Are there any other issues that um, that we're seeing uh, in these Senate races that are kind of coming up? I know that a lot of it's ended up into the personal attack kind of spaces more than anything, uh, kind of a little bit thin on policy. But um, what are some of the winning? Do you think maybe some of the winning policies that uh, Senate candidates should be advancing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, I think the jobs and the economy have to be the issues that you lead on. But I think the other one, uh, Ryan, I think is, is um, and this I think is, is really critical for the suburban uh, vote, you know, particularly uh, suburban women voters. So as last year during the, the governor's race in, in Virginia with Youngkin. But I think just this, this idea of, of, uh, of educational freedom, this idea that, you know, parents, um, should have more options when it comes to education. That that is an issue that um, I think is a winning issue for 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 folks. Uh, I think leaning in on that. I mean, I think that this idea that um, you know this one size fits all approach to education is, is a way to do it. I think it, it, it's a message that was turned upside down right. uh, during the pandemic. And so I, I I think that yeah I think that you can see uh, you know just to go real quick to in Washington State. Um, um, Senator Murray uh, is up against a candidate, and I'm blanking on her name, but uh, she's she's a she's a, a female uh, a candidate, uh, a, a mom, um, and uh, and she she's really leaning in onto that to that educational freedom message, this the COVID, the school closures, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that's what makes a lot of these some of these candidates vulnerable um, because uh, you know they they have to defend you know some of the policies that they enacted. Um, you know, during COVID, and, and 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 I think to me, COVID, the COVID policies are endemic of the way the left approaches a lot of a lot of issues, Ryan. And I think that's what uh, you know. If candidates want to want to push back on that, I think that they, they could, you know, by offering you know the, the bottom bottom up solutions that that, that we talk about. Uh, and so I think that that could be a winning message, a winning strategy in my mind. Right. Um, you know, here in Arkansas, we noticed that during the primaries that candidates that really messaged. Uh, front and center on education freedom they were they were the majority winners in our state i think that uh, individuals are are getting excited about 
having more control over their child's education. And some of the changes that we need will be at the federal level. So um, need to be supporting candidates that support the rights of parents to make the best decisions uh, for their for their students. So uh, we'll be going to a break, and uh, on the back side we'll talk to Izzy a little more about um, house races and some other policies that we find interesting across the nation. Good morning, everyone. Again, Ryan Norris sitting in for Dave Ellswick, who is on vacation. Uh, go to 1011FMTheAnswer.com to catch the podcast and stream that. Uh, had some interesting guests this go around. Kevin Hunt with Lessons Learned, uh, talking about working with the youth in the city of Little Rock and mitigating violent crime among them. Uh, we currently have Israel Ortega with the Libre Initiative uh, speaking with us. Just covered a bit on the Senate races, uh, Senate races that he's found interesting, Pennsylvania, Georgia. And uh, now, Israel, I'd like to pivot a little bit to uh, some house, you know, house races. What are you seeing there? Because all, we're all anticipating a backstop, hopefully, for the Senate. And we know that that's a little toss-up up in the air there. But... Um, what do you see on the House side? How can how can uh, the Republican uh, get a majority there? What are you looking at? Are you there, Easy? Oh, sorry, Ryan. <laughs> uh, I was I was being <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, hey, Ryan. Yeah, no. Um, you know, one place that I, I like to go to uh, to kind of get a snapshot of where things are uh, for uh, for for you know the House, particularly the Senate as well. Um, it is uh, the Cook Political Report? Uh, it's it's a it's a site a lot of Washington people here uh, look to, uh, but they have a, a, um, you know they basically have like six columns um, of of where you know there are key races that that they're looking at that uh, could mark the difference between um, you know who controls uh, the House uh, and, and um, you know during the last few weeks again you know sort of post Labor Day. Um, you started seeing some races, um, you know, for example, the, the Meyer Flores race that we talked just uh, uh, earlier on, on, in the hour, uh, that was a, a race that because of the, the, the way that the district was uh, redistricted, um, it, was, it leaned more Democrat. Um, but, uh, but since then, the Cook Political Report has now, has now made it a toss-up. Uh, it's a race that uh, is in the, in the Valley in, in South Texas. And I think, again, what's important, you know, people think, you know, well, Texas is Republican, so automatically, you know, it, it, should, it should be, uh, you know, Republican seat. But, but it, you know, as you know, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, parts in Texas that, um, that have voted Democrat for a long time. I mentioned, uh, you know, places like uh, Zapata County, uh, right on the border, that hadn't voted for Republican in, in, in 50 years. Uh, so that's uh, that's a race that I'm watching. Um, you know the the uh, the, the Yezzy Vega uh, race that um, you know is is currently held by Spannenberger, another Democrat there. Uh, that could flip, and that could be, be a huge huge win for Republicans. Um, uh, and then you've got other other seats. Um, you know where um, you know out in California, you've got a couple seats that. Um, uh, uh, right now are, are held by Republicans, but, but obviously California is a pretty Democrat state, you know, uh, Balvedo and mm-hmm. Garcia, for example, in Southern California. So, um, you know, you know, th- there are a lot we can go through, but I think that the, the key thing here is that, um, you know, the shift is real, right? I think that um, you're seeing Republicans starting to solidify uh, their support. Um, the question is, now, can they ha- hang on to that? You know, obviously in about four and a half weeks, five, five weeks remaining, uh, a lot can happen. Right. Right. And, you know, so what what from your opinion is 
you know, we keep hearing it all the time about how this is the most important election of our time. I've heard it every election since I've started tracking elections. (laughs) And, you know, but what are we looking at in the Biden administration next two years um, if if Republicans don't get a backstop somewhere? Yeah, no, I know. I mean, I think I think, you know, this year, uh, the type of spending uh, that we saw with uh, with, with uh, you know, the, the covid relief, you know, initially um, and then we started seeing um, this, uh, you know, uh, a wrongly named Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which added uh, so much to our, our, our um you know, seventeen trillion dollar de- deficit that we have. Um, the, it just recently, with the with the student loan forgiveness, um, I think it's just it, it, to me these these policies directly impact uh, our ability to live out our best version of the American dream. And, and I think this is why it's so important that, like you said, there's a backstop that we have we have uh, principled elected officials uh, who are willing to call out both sides because I think yeah, that's important as well you know there's a lot of, uh, of, of bad policies from both parties um, but but the fact that the spending is going unchecked right now uh, that to me is a big concern um, and so um, this is why this election is important uh, you know I'm, I'm like you I've worked in, pol- in policy and politics for a long time so I, I've heard this line before but but in terms of the spending, I mean, it, just the spending alone in some of these bills that, that, that were enacted this year uh, were, were higher than, uh, you know, Obamacare spending. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, we, we were just, you know, flabbergasted when we saw the price cycle of Obamacare. And, and now it's, you know, basically, um, you know, a footnote of the spending that's happening this year. And so I think that's why it's so important that we do elect policy champions. Uh, we were going to, um, you know, make the, the, the tough decisions, you know, to say no, to control spending, uh, to, to cut regulations when necessary. Uh, because that's what's going to allow our country to be prosperous and be free. Right. And we've got just a couple of minutes, but when you hit on the Obamacare, you know, there are alternatives to that. And uh, what are, what are uh, some of the highlights of what I'm hearing called the personal option? Yeah, 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 this is something that uh, uh, we, uh, as, a, as a community, as the initiative and, 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 and AFP, have been talking about. But, uh, but really, you know, in the in the minute here, Brian, it just it really is just the idea that we cannot double down on, on what we have before, uh, what we had before that was that was illustrated during the pandemic, which is this top down, one size fits all approach to healthcare. We want to do is is really make it easier for for patients to be connected to healthcare providers. And there are so many regulations, so many impediments right now, Ryan, that make it harder to do that. And and that's why we, we want to underscore the, the personalization, the customization that needs to happen in healthcare. That's where we're going to bring down cost. That's where we're going to bring um, uh, higher quality care to mm-hmm. all Yeah. So if we don't have backstops in the House and the Senate, then the bad policies get doubled down on and good policies don't have a chance to to advance. So, Izzy, thank you very much with the Libre uh, Initiative, Israel Ortega. Um, Look forward to sometime having you here in the state of Arkansas. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, this uh, 6 to 8 o'clock segments of the Dave Ellswick Show. We'll be back at 9 o'clock. Go to 1011FMTheAnswer.com to stream the podcast. We'll catch you at 9 o'clock.
Good morning, everyone. This is Ryan Norris sitting in for Dave Ellswick, who is on a much-deserved vacation. Uh, the Facebook is down today, which is lucky for you. I have a Phase 4 radio. So you can catch these segments at 1011fmtheanswer.com. If you'd like to listen to the podcast, stream it live there. Also, lots of other good content at the website that you can listen to Hugh Hewitt, uh, all of the other great uh, segments that are out there to educate our Kansans about national and state-based policy and politics. Exciting times. We're only uh, a little over a month away from election, midterm elections. Had some great conversation uh, with Israel Ortega at the 7 to 8 o'clock hour about the Hispanic and Latino communities who are really interested in free markets, individualism, and it's starting to reflect that the traditional advantage that Democrats had in that community is eroding and eroding rather rapidly. And this is kind of an exciting opportunity for those of us who think in terms of smaller government and of freeing up the individual to maximize their contribution to their communities. So that was an interesting segment to go back and listen to. And also we spoke with Kevin Hunt, who is with Lessons Learned, working with our at-risk youth here in the city of Little Rock, does great work to help decrease violence and crime in real time with our youth. So, again, go back and listen to those segments uh, at 1011fmtheanswer.com. In the studio with me now, I have uh, Paul Chapman. Paul is a, a now become a longtime friend of mine now. We've been doing, doing business for a little while now through AFP. We have, and thanks for having me, Ryan. Yeah, no problem, Paul. It's always good to see you. I I've, I've stay just impressed all the time about the work that you do through Restore Hope and the 100 Families Project. I, I haven't seen anything in my time, and I've worked in nonprofit work. It, for nine years, I worked in nonprofit work, and I haven't seen anyone who is able to not just help people, but actually change the trajectory of their life. As as you've been able to do through Restore Hope and 100 Families. So, for those that don't know you, Paul, give a little bit about your background and give a little bit about the history of Restore Hope. Yeah, so I'm an Arkansas boy, grew up here, went to college here, married here, uh, raised kids here, um, and I was I worked for Systematics as soon as it sold to Altel. So I worked for AIS in the banking technology field, and um, and then went over in 2001 went to Saudi Arabia with Altel Information Services to serve our client over there. And, of course, 9-11 happened while we were there. Um, I finished out our contract. had my family there. It got quite dicey. Um, and finished out my contract in 03 and returned to Little Rock to work um, in, in banking software. But 
with a new kind of set of lenses to look on life is life is short what are the most important things Mm -hmm. and so i started volunteering uh, with my church and one of the places that i was volunteering was inside of a local prison teaching men that were about to get out um, parenting and how to live with a woman and how to get a job and all, all those types of things and it opened up this whole world of justice to me in which I've become engaged for 17, 18 years now. Right, right. You know, so I, I think that you may have had a similar experience to what I've had when I'm, we're talking about justice and the justice involved, particularly reentry space. You know, I remember I come from a background, never been justice involved, never had any interactions with the law enforcement. Um, no one in my family has had any of that. And then coming to Americans for Prosperity, talking about the reentry policies and how there are sometimes barriers the government puts in place that keep people from being able to to improve their life. Uh, that didn't dawn on me until I started paying a little closer attention. I remember one young lady came to me. I was and she came to me and she was like, hey, I need you to t- hear my story. And she told me this horrible story that I'm like, if that had been my life, I would have needed a coping mechanism as well. And she said, Ryan, I'm not a criminal. I'm, I'm a drug addict. Yeah. And, and it really hit me that, um, you know, she's, you said it across from her, you can't tell that she's anything but just a normal average person, but she had these struggles. And it made me look through, you know, policies out there that we've worked on, such as, you know, when people do complete their sentence, uh, we worked on uh, record sealing. And started off working with Representative Justin Boyd, uh, took away the $50 fee to where you don't have to pay a fee to prove that you paid your debt to society and that you're a good citizen. Then we worked at expanding, um, not the the list of charges, but there was an arbitrary date and then some arbitrary where you were sentenced, ADC versus ACC. Same charge. We believe in equality under the law, right? So if we both commit the same transgression, we should have the same punishments and the same opportunities to get beyond them. And that wasn't shown up. Well, last session, again, uh, Representative Boyd and Senator uh, Bob Ballinger passed reforms that expanded this to where people who had gotten past those struggles in their life uh, wanted to be able to move beyond that and have their record seal, which gave them better housing opportunities, education opportunities, and, and uh, work opportunities. So some of that has been informed, Paul, by the work that I've been able to observe through Restore Hope. And tell us a little bit about what Restore Hope is and how it came to be and what it does. Yeah, so Restore Hope is a software and services organization that helps communities get better outcomes on child welfare and criminal justice uh, issues. And we do that mostly through um, what we've identified as the chief problem that needs to be solved now, which is there, there are we don't have a system, we have a system of systems, which makes any type of change exceedingly complex and therefore unlikely to produce the types of outcomes that uh, we all want. And so uh, with our solution, we maximize the, um, the system and improve outcomes by uh, connecting the parts in a better way. It would be akin to trying to build a home without a builder. Right. So you could have very competent subcontractors that you send your blueprints to <laughs> and tell them just to bill you, and the roofer shows up the first day and there's no ground broken. Right. That is the way that people who are, um, who are poor and in a crisis attempt to access the social services that are in all of our communities. Right, and, and I think... I- 
I've seen that for I was frustrated by that up until I knew Restore Hope. My frustration with nonprofit had been that everyone does a really good job of one or two things over particular demographic areas, and they don't have a way of connecting or communicating well with each other. And so, what you have done is you've taken as we would say the key institutions of like business, um, community. Uh, government and education, and you've combined those in a way to where someone comes into the system from no matter which partner they come into, your assessment finds their levels of crisis. You find out what they do need. Do they have a foundation at their home or not? You know, do they have the framing up or not? Do they have the roof or not? Is the siding on? You know, you have a great approach to that, and I think that it's it's bearing out positive results. Nonprofits tend to do something very well. And then they see additional need, and th- there's this mission creep that happens that erodes away their comparative advantage mm-hmm. and their their ability to be good at the thing that they're good at. And I, th- I see that as a great uh, opportunity for nonprofits that connect with you, that they can get back to what they're really good at and trust their other partners that are better at other things. And that's that's been amazing. Well, it took a long time to get there, and and we had to move through a lot of that kind of direct service. I've been involved in in educational programs and housing programs and substance abuse programs uh, and job training programs, and and we've uh, done those types of things. But being able to um, create, to, to one, to really understand the problem and how government works and nonprofit works and funding structures work and how behavior works, right? Um, and then you know the creation of, of of this solution has been the um, the work of hundreds of people in six different communities in Arkansas now over the past six years. Now, how uh, how did Restore Hope come around? There was a Restore Hope initiative, right? Yes, yes. So Governor Hutchinson, when he took office in 2015, had the fastest growing prison population in the nation. From 12 to 16, Arkansas grew by more than 20 percent in our prison population. Wow. And if you look at the growth curve and number of children coming into foster care, it mirrored that, that same growth curve. And, um, and so Governor Hutchinson, uh, in his first year, called the – he looked – while he was campaigning, he met with many of the organizations that were engaged in reentry and foster care work, and many of them were faith-based organizations. And so he held a summit – uh, mid-15, called the Restore Hope Summit that was really focused on calling the faith community to partner with the agencies to do more of what they were already doing. Mm-hmm. And so I sat on the um, – I worked for Fellowship Bible Church here in Little Rock. I was in charge of missions. We did a lot of direct service, gave gave a lot of money away um, every year. And, and because of that position that I was in, I was asked to sit on the steering committee. Now, you know, you and I have talked about this before, but – in general, um, justice issues, um, even reentry issues, have not been policy that conservatives have been interested in. Why should conservatives be interested in that? I mean, the prison population is increasing. Okay, well, why why would someone like Governor Hutchinson care about that? Well, I, I'd say there there are several different kind of conservative principles here, and and one of them would be we spend a lot of money on these issues. So incarceration right. is one of the interventions we get to uh, use. It's wildly expensive and doesn't usually work. I, I'd say about fifty percent of the time it it, um, it works in preventing future crime when someone gets out. Mm-hmm. And almost everyone gets out. 
Right. Okay, so incarceration, very expensive. It should be at the end of a long line of interventions until it's like, you're dangerous, we got to get you off the street, and we're going to lock you up for a bit of time. Well, I like that comment that you've made to me before, and I use this often in conversation, is there's the people that we're, we're mad at and the people that we're scared of. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, lock up jails and prisons should be for the folks that we're scared of. Absolutely, we need it. And yeah. we should reserve it for those people. And and we should not overcrowd jails and prisons um, because then we can't use it for those folks, which will impact public safety. Right, right. And so so that's, you know, we spend about, what, $24,000 a year? That's roughly what it takes to incarcerate someone in state prison. Right. Every and year. so that's money that's coming out of general funds that could be going to education, could be going to a lot of other things. Right. When we lock someone up in the community, um, they, on average, will do just over four years at time. So you can think about it. Every time that, that uh, we uh, use incarceration as a intervention, then that's $100,000. Right. And that, again, $100,000, the trade-off is that could be going somewhere else. It could be going somewhere else like education. Yeah. Um, so we have these conservative principles that I mean, just comes out, the, comes out the gate. How successful has Restore Hope been on the recidivism side with its you, clients? You know, recidivism is a three-year number. So when someone's released from prison, recidivism typically is a measure of uh, what percentage of people that were released uh, three years um, within the three years of release returned to prison. We haven't had a formal study uh, done on that. Now, we've had anecdotal data over the years in both jails and prisons, and mm-hmm. it seems positive. I would say on the child welfare side, what we're able to measure a, a lot shorter is um, like reunification rates right. and then removal rates. So uh, if a teacher, a mandatory reporter, doctor teacher, uh, calls the child welfare hotline because uh, – you know, Johnny Chapman is showing up at school and they're dirty and hungry. Uh, and so they call the child welfare hotline, DCFS, or the state police go out and do an investigation. And um, and then there's interventions needed. Right. Um, if we have to remove the child from the home and place them in foster care, that child's probably not going back home. Right. Forty-three percent of the time does that child successfully get reunified with their family. And so with the communities that partner in the way using our software and kind of model, um, that is above 76 percent in all six counties. Right. So barring the safety of the child, we need to try to keep families together. Yeah, so that's the the next conservative principle. I think is we need to realize really almost the sanctity of the family, and we need to enact laws and policies that do everything possible to make our Arkansas families as strong as possible. Right, realizing that it helps um, it helps prevent crime, uh, drug use, bad behavior, all those things. But then when they do occur then it is the place that could provide the best support for recovery from those things. Right. I mean, family support is always is a top-tier number one for what motivates individuals to improve their life. I want to do right by my kids. I want to do right by my wife. I want to do right by my, my grandparents, whatever that may be. Well, and I would say for long-term happiness and success and satisfaction, what we do know, both from a, the longest running Harvard study and a, a book by Arthur Brooks, who's a, a Christian conservative that just recently dropped, um, 
so life satisfaction is measured in depth of relationships Mm -hmm. and primarily with family and and the listeners that are out there know this because i i can't imagine that you don't have a um a relative that is um that you're estranged from for some reason and the hurt that that causes both you and your extended family um now you can imagine what that would be like if you don't have a resource if you're just broke right if you're poor, you're unable to necessarily uh, recover from things like your teenage uh, child <laughs> experimenting with drugs. And um, and then how do you pull them back into the family, surround them, and try to get them back on track? If you've got no resources, that becomes exceedingly difficult. Right. And resources do exist out there. And part of what Restore Hopes does is to um, to, you know, connect them to those resources they don't even know about Um, and sometimes the process of acquiring the resource can also be a barrier a little bit reading comprehension of the forms um, 32 page form for yes name it yes and and so uh websites that are tough to navigate or you may not have um have time, you know, have broadband. But uh, we're going to talk some more with Paul Chapman after the break on uh, here on uh, 101.1 FM, The Answer. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. Ryan Norris sitting in for Dave, uh, talking to Paul Chapman, Executive Director of Restore Hope, and we're talking about um, Arkansas and, and poverty and foster care and reentry and decreasing recidivism rates uh, in the state of Arkansas. And Paul does this through 100 Families Project. Paul, tell us a little bit about how the 100 Families model actually works. So 100 Families is an effort that a community owns, and there are three parts. If you're going to increase the uh, outcomes for justice in a community, there are three parts that are missing. And one is you have to have a group of people, like a coalition, that would focus on a goal. And so 100 Families is we're going to help 100 families at a time move from crisis to career. You need this software that allows you to communicate in a fully compliant, a HIPAA a compliant way so that a parole officer can talk to a mental health provider can talk with the housing authority again in in a compliant way and then thirdly you need something that we just call a case manager that would be at a point of contact a jail a, a child welfare office they meet a client and introduce them into this coalition of help that could actually provide services from crisis to career right and so what is I've heard success stories, but tell me one of your favorite. Well, uh, I'd say that um, they have a name. Um, they're over in western Arkansas. And so three, four years ago, about the time that um, Fort Smith had launched uh, their coalition, 100 Families Coalition, we met a couple uh, who had moved to town, started using methamphetamine, and everything just blew up on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they gotten into a fight. Neighbors called the cops. They come in, and kids go into foster care. So they're sitting in the back. The father tells the story. He's sitting in the back of the cop car uh, just bawling because he's watching his kids get taken away, and his little daughter had no idea what was going on. Right. And so they, uh, they worked, and they did a lot of very hard work uh, to get clean and to put their house back in order. Uh, to, and they got their kids back. Uh, but she now works for us uh, for about a year as wow. a case manager going back into the very juvenile court that uh, held her case all those mm-hmm. years ago. 
And what's so great about that, she doubled the number of clients that we were seeing in that county within about a month, month and a half, because she can go into that court to um, someone who's having maybe the worst day of their life. Right. And she'll go, hey, Mom, you want some help? Because I was right where you were three years ago. Right. That's amazing. That's amazing. And there's more stories like that that can happen across the state of Arkansas. Um, you know, many of these resources that you're using, they exist, but how 100 Families ties that all together to maximize it is is very fascinating because you've talked to me before about how can you be prepared for your, you know, your court date on Friday when you're worried about being evicted on Thursday and your kids are hungry and et cetera, et cetera. And these systems exist. And we get frustrated as, as taxpayers at times because we're saying, man, everybody keeps saying we need to put more money into these systems. Well, sometimes it's just that the funds within the systems are not being maximized because no one's connecting the dots like 100 Families and Restore Hope. So uh, we're about to go to another break. Uh, after the break, we'll continue the conversation with Paul Chapman, uh, with the Executive Director for Restore Hope and the 100 Families Project. Uh, excited about the, uh, the outcomes that we're seeing there uh, that are affecting real people here in the state of Arkansas. So check with us on the backside of this break. Welcome back to another segment of the Dave Ellswick Show. This is again Ryan Norris sitting in for Dave, who is on again that much-needed vacation time. We appreciate Dave and uh, all the work that he's done. He's an institution and has been a great conservative voice in central Arkansas, uh, keeping us informed about the issues that we all need to know about. Uh, we're talking right now in studio with Paul Chapman, Executive Director of Restore, Hopes and Restore Hope and the 100 Families Project, uh, about how they use uh, their software to connect resources to people that have foster care issues going on or in this reentry space uh, or about to become justice involved in some cases. And the fascinating results that they're seeing that is soft on on taxpayers, smart on crime, and producing positive results that keep future crimes from happening. Uh, you know, a George Floyd incident happened, and a lot of the backlash from that, there were those that kind of had this knee-jerk reaction that resulted, you know, in cliches such as, uh, you know, defund the police and things such as that. But through your project, you work closely with judges and courts and law enforcement and you know how important it is that these entities are able to do their job and do it well they have a lift in this process talk to us a little bit about what you've seen in that and your work with courts and law enforcement yeah run right after george floyd i thought that we in america were ready for an adult conversation um which clearly didn't happen but yeah we get fruit loopy things like defund the police that kind of come out uh, from the left um, and we see some of the results of that. And from the right, the tendency, though, uh, is to uh, let's just get tough. And, and get tough means, you know, let's build up our anger and, and find someone that uh, we can drop the hammer on. Um, but the adult conversation that I, I think we need to have is understanding that there are, there are a set of interventions that are available to us through the law. And if we can if we can tire law enforcement, uh, courts and law enforcement prosecutors to the help that's there in the community, then they can build a uh, spectrum of interventions mm-hmm. that can prevent us um, 
from necessarily having to spend a really good money on um, on incarceration and on foster care, which are the most expensive options that we have available to mm-hmm. us, and long term don't have the kind of long term payout. So the problems that we're dealing with right now in crime and foster care were decisions that we made 10, 15 years ago. Right. And so as conservative-minded people, we need, to, we need to think soberly around how are we going to invest our money to, one, is you cannot mess with public safety. You right. must have safety. It is a pillar on which we can build civilized society. You knock that out, it doesn't matter what you're else done. you've got going for you. You're done. And so, um, yes, we work with law enforcement. Uh, in fact, we, we created... A, a website and a publication with a podcast called Smart Justice, smartjustice.org. And there is a story on there that uh, folks that are interested in kind of this conversation about the Fort Smith Police Department. And we interviewed Chief Baker, who's mm-hmm. been a part of this for many, many years. And what is um, so encouraging is a Fort Smith Police Department, along with uh, Sheriff Hobie Runyon there in Sebastian County, have been able to take this approach and avail themselves, use their discretion, because the community has banded together. Mm -hmm. And uh, last year, they saw a reduction um, above 20% in incarceration in the local jail and a decrease in crime by 4%. Right. Now, that sounds counterintuitive. That sounds like how can you have a decrease in incarceration and decrease in crime? But it does come down to community working with law enforcement. And no one no one wants to just put somebody into a bureaucracy and think that that's going to solve their problems. What you do is you have people who care that are connected passionately to what they do for their community. And when you get that person that's in need, that crisis, and someone's made dumb mistakes, made bad decisions, you get them connected, and law enforcement knows that those people exist, they can get people help as opposed to just saying, hey, let's throw them in jail, and that's the end of the story. So um, it's impressive. There's actually a paper out there uh, on what Chief Baker has been doing and showing what he has done to decrease, again, incarcerations. And to also show the corresponding decrease in crime. And that has been a I, – I attribute that, to, again, to all of those partners in Sebastian County, Fort Smith, working together on that. If anyone's interested in that paper, uh, you can reach out to, to me at infoar at afphq.org, and I'd be happy to send it to you. Paul, is there other ways that they can get a hold Smartjustice.org. of Smartjustice.org. Yep. The full digital magazine is there. Uh, Chief Baker's uh, article is on on kind of the main page there. And then there's a podcast in which Baker and judges and and other uh, providers, um, it's a six-series uh, podcast really on this approach. Very cool. Very cool. Because I know that you you put uh, caseworkers in in the courts as well. Right. How, do, how does that work? So it depends on the court. There, I think district court is the future um, of uh, the next Smart Justice magazine. That's a misdemeanor court. But uh, where we're currently putting a lot of our case managers is in juvenile court. So uh, families are in trouble, and they have a protective services case, which just means they have engagement from the state uh, to make sure to remedy some situations, but the child hasn't been removed, and then removals into foster care. Uh, and so a case manager would be in that court 
offering people help, and if they take it, then they'll do a full assessment, and then they'll build in the software, they'll build a care team that would be cross-sector. It'd be Mm -hmm. many different organizations, which could include government agencies, are all now on this one case able to talk in a fully compliant way, partnering together to help that person. Um, remedy the situations that left them there, and then further try to get them all the way to career. Right. And so with these clients that you come across, what are some of the major barriers that they are facing to improving their lives? Yeah, so 75% of our clients have been locked up in jail or prison. One quarter uh, meet the the federal definition of homelessness, and that wouldn't be kind of chronic homeless. That would be situational homeless. They're couch surfing. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got about half uh, do not have high school diploma or GD, so educational crisis. And then there's substance abuse and, and possible mental health right. issues that are there. Right. Yeah. And so some of, some of these barriers, though, we've identified a few here and there that are policy-based. Is there any, like, one or two policy areas that, that you think we should look at as a state? Yeah. So Arkansas is largely rural, and we really don't have public transportation um, enough to get you the things that you need. And so um, if you're outside of Little Rock or uh, places in, Fay- in Fayetteville or Fort Smith, there, there's just no buses. Mm-hmm. And so uh, how do you afford a car and pay insurance and, and do all those things? Um, that's something that our clients struggle with is transportation. Also, and, and going in that, something that we've worked on together is this suspension of – so if you got a seatbelt ticket now and you didn't show up to court and you mm-hmm. didn't pay, then we'd issue a warrant for your arrest, and we would suspend your driver's license. Right. If we caught you again and your children are in the car and there's no family around, we would take you to jail, which you may have to stay in for multiple days up to a week before you could go in for right. the judge to get put on the payment plan. But where do your children go? Yeah. If you've got no family here, they go into foster care. And right. that's on a misdemeanor crime. Right. So suspension of driver's license is something that it seems right because you should have paid your ticket. It's like, come on, man. Yeah. Uh, but um, but the, the um, consequences of that are not something that any of us want to pay for. That's bad money spent. Right. Yeah. It's, it doesn't make any sense that over, you know, $100 or whatever that – someone gets locked up and then there's that accumulation you know after so many days you lose your job maybe yeah you lose your you know your car maybe can't pay your you rent. can't pay your now rent etc etc et yeah and it's it, a snowball and it snowballs now we feel we feel righteously justified in saying didn't we this bad person did this dumb thing you know or this dumb person just did this dumb thing and we uh, we feel better about ourselves, but when you calculate the actual cost of taxpayers yeah. on it, it makes yeah. If you no want to throw sense. your money away, let's just do more of that. Right, right. And um, so there's a project going on right now uh, that I want to hit on the IR three that Restore Hope is is working on with the Rockefeller Institute. Tell us a little bit about that project and what we hope to get out of this. So the the uh, Winthrop Rockefeller Institute uh, is a convener. Um, and we've been working with them for about two years. They've convened folks from across the state that are looking at um, at some things that we could jointly work on uh, in the recidivism, uh, reentry, and reunification space. And so over the past two years, folks like you and <laughs> law enforcement and judges have been um, up there uh, identifying how is it that we as a state can start to spend our money uh, in maybe a little different ways and really focus on positive outcomes right. for public safety, for uh, jo- for employment rates, and for crime. Right. And 
it's been fascinating because as we dig in, into the weeds on particular policies, Paul, uh, we're seeing that there are some good ideas out there that we just need to actually get implemented. So, such as making sure that IDs uh, for those that are leaving uh, prison that they have their IDs ready and, and you know able to go. That they've worked through their fines, fees, and warrants and all of that to get that cleaned up, so that they're not picked up again as soon as they walk out the the door. We've hear of these instances. They walk out of the prison, they walk over, and they get into another police car that takes them to another prison or another jail somewhere for something they weren't able to take care of while they were on the inside. Um, I know last year that uh, Senator Missy Irving and Representative Robin Lundstrom had passed some legislation that would allow for the incarcerated to clean up some of that. And so that's a positive move, uh, but but making sure that someone's responsible for getting those identifications. And we're working on Social Security cards, getting their Social Security cards, uh, those kind of things. Get them into the economy faster, which allows them to have some sources of income, which decreases their need to fall into old behaviors right right yeah i i think you know kind of the the broad scope of what we would want is uh i think about it if someone moved next to me so when i got in the car to take the kids to school today if uh, i knew someone had um, maintained a five-year addiction and then uh, got popped and did four years in prison and hadn't worked really in the legal field any of that time and they were broke and they stepped out on their front porch smoked a cigarette as i was driving away i'm nervous i'm not okay with that but uh, instead if i knew that they had a five-year addiction and then did time in prison and had been working in prison paid off all their fees and fines and got out and they were driving uh to work with me and we waved (laughs) i'm good with that yeah um, and so, you know, we need to start thinking, I think, more broadly about if we're going to the, – all these interventions should be putting um, all the different uh, incentives to becoming um, a, a contributing member of the community, pursuing happiness along with the rest of us. Right. Exactly. And, and that's what we need to do. Look at those incentives that we're setting up. Uh, because sometimes you talk about restoring hope. Those that come out of reentry particularly, I mean, the hopelessness that they, they have in their mind. Because in general, no one particularly wants to help them. They're, you know, they've been bad people, right? That's the right. way we think of them. And you have a different perspective. And that perspective again, comes from conservative principles of what's going to be the most effective for our public safety, what's going to be soft on taxpayers, and what is going to set us up for keeping a family and generally whole, and making them a contributing member of our society. It's not pleasant work. It's work that we wish in the ideal didn't exist, but it does, the fallen nature of human man. Um but you're doing great, great work in this space. I just, I'm very proud to to say that I get to partner with you because you've informed me so much about good policy and what we can do. That that again takes those people that we're mad at, gets them to be a contributing member of society, grow up, take care of your obligations, and we're seeing that happen. You know, we had Kevin Hunt here, who his story is that of a trajectory of I didn't have good modeling for my childhood, I didn't have the best make the best decisions in my childhood, but here he is, writing, having written now two books, right. master's degrees, highly educated, making an impact with our youth, and he he was just 
you know, back in the day, a gangbanger how that do, couldn't read. How do we look at the folks that we're mad at right now and see Kevin Hunt's in the future? Yeah. That's the thing. How do we look at the folks that we're mad at now or or are starting to slide down um, into the deep hole of, of crisis? And we say, you know, there are four, we need 4,000 truck drivers in Arkansas now, and that's a good paying job. Yeah. And uh, so how do we build bridges from trouble? Right. To truck driver. Right. And one of my favorite quotes, and I think it's been attributed to Gandhi, was when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And I find that fascinating because you start going and saying public public safety threat, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, could just be an assumption being made about the threat level. But when you start looking at them in terms of human potential, I look at them in sometimes in what's the bound up gross domestic product for our state that's yeah. not being realized in this person being able to contribute to to our economy. Yeah, Fa- foundational kind of computer scientist Alan K. Key uh, said. A change in perspective is worth 80 IQ points. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. And we're seeing that. There are, are plenty of people that, that you know and that I'm getting to know who have these stories of success that their life didn't start out well. But now they're contributing members. They're starting their own businesses. They're hiring people. They're being uh, excellent employees. Uh, you hire some from from the reentry space. Um They've been they've been with you for years. Yes, and highly capable. Uh, you know, second chance careers is an area that we're interested in at AFP, and uh, so we're going to talk a little bit more on the backside about every child Arkansas. But we're up for a break. We'll catch you in just a few minutes. We're back for the final few minutes of the Dave Ellswick show. And uh, we've got about four minutes. So, Paul, I want to jump right in here to uh, Every Child Arkansas. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so we have a hard time in Arkansas um, recruiting and retaining uh, foster parents. And so um, while we've been with 100 Families and Restore Hope, we've really looked at um, how to increase the help for biological families. Um, a, uh, a man named Phil Goad, who's been a CASA volunteer and sat on the board of the Christian Alliance for Orphans for a number of years, put this group together about a year ago that looked at how do we actually have more than enough before, during, and after foster care, mm-hmm. which would include uh, foster parents and help for DCFS in these communities. So uh, in January, we're going to launch a another collaborative effort with the call in Arkansas, Arkansas Baptist Children's Home and Family Ministries, uh, Compact Foster Care, Together We Foster. And so there's a collection of organizations, primarily faith-based organizations that have been in the foster care space that are all coming together, and we're bringing some more technology in from uh, Oregon mm-hmm. um, who are, are using technology in a way to identify and recruit foster parents that would then be taken care of by one of the partner orgs, and uh, we'll launch this effort in partnership with the state to try to get enough foster parents, retain those foster parents, and help for biological families so that we can really start to transform the child welfare industry in the state of Arkansas. Do we know how many kids are in currently in the foster care? Uh, it's around 4,500. 4,500. Mm-hmm. Wow. So uh, from the little town in Arkansas that I come from, that's double what our population is. It would be two of my hometowns. Yeah. You know, we were crawling post-pandemic. We, I think we 
just topped out over 5,000 children in care. Uh, in Pulaski County, we've been particularly hard hit uh, in that, the you know, as the number of children rose to over 700, which was at abnormally large population in Pulaski County, it made the job so tough that uh, many folks just didn't keep it. Right. They left. And when you have turnover, then it starts to degrade operations. And so we just had a, um, a cascading set of, of bad consequences. So uh, every child Arkansas will start first in Pulaski County, um, you know, trying to help right the ship and then put the helps in at every point in the juvenile courts and in the DCFS offices so that we can prevent removals and then increase the likelihood that, you know, when reunification is a goal, that it happens. Right, because if we can intervene in these ch- children's lives earlier, they have a greater likelihood of being productive citizens, you know, self-actualize themselves to have better opportunities in the future. I can't imagine what it would be like to, to be in the situation where I'd have to be a foster child. It it leaves a mark for sure. Uh, it's something in a, that we don't have time to talk about, but it's called adverse childhood experiences. There's a ten question mm-hmm. test, but but the interventions. You know, if, if the listeners could leave with anything, it's that it's cause and effect. What we do has has impact, and so if we remove a child into foster care, we incarcerate a person. We uh, should have those options available to us, but. It has a lasting effect. It does not deal long-term with the issues that led to the crisis that, right. that we were trying to address. Well, Paul, how can, again, how can let, alert the listeners to how they can learn more about Restore Hope, 100 Families, about Every Child Arkansas, if there's um, information on that? Yeah, so you could go to our website at uh, RestoreHopeArkansas.org um, to learn about Restore Hope. Uh, if you're interested in kind of this approach to justice, there's SmartJustice.org. And then on Facebook, uh, every county has a 100 Families Facebook page. Yeah. And which counties are do we have for a 100 Families right now? Sebastian and Crawford, which is western Arkansas, Pulaski, White, um, Miller, which is down in Texarkana, and Pope. All right. Well, awesome. Well, Paul, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dave Ellswick, for letting me be your host today. We look forward to having you back soon, sir. Everybody have a great, great, wonderful day. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.